Hello and welcome to another episode of African Jeopardy. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creil in Scotland. And I'm Dehia and I'm recording confinement mode from Vancouver in Canada. So today we're going to be talking about working for peace in situations of conflict. And we have a really cool person to discuss this topic with us today. Nakanya Ntuli is a specialist and a dispute resolution um, expert. She is a South African lawyer, mediator, trainer, and process facilitator. Uh, prior to joining the compliance advisor ombudsman, part of the World's Bank Group, she worked as a constitutionalism and rule of law expert in the Department of Political Affairs at the African Union Commission in Addis Abeba. She has extensive legal experience in corporate, intellectual, property, labor, and public policy law. She also has mediation experience and has mediated commercial employment, land, community, small claims, and electoral disputes. She has an impressive um, resume, but beyond that, she has also lived in various geographies. She has lived and worked uh, in the United Kingdom, in Zambia, Uganda, Kenya, Liberia, Ethiopia, and South Africa in the private, public, nonprofit, and multinational environments practicing law and mediation. She also has conducted short-term projects in Malawi, Botswana, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone. She's basically a citizen of the world. She holds a postgraduate fellowship on peace and security from King's College London and the African Leadership Center, an LLM in corporate law from Nottingham Trent University and LLB honors from the University of, well, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing the name right. I'm really bad with pronunciations. <laughs> Wolverhampton and a certificate in transnational justice and peace building from the United Nations Institute for Training and Research. She is also an ADR group in the UK, accredited mediator. Uh, she has served on the boards of several non-governmental organizations and is currently a board member at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation in South Africa. She also volunteers. She finds the time to volunteer yeah, with all of this yes, as a mediator for the District Court of Maryland Alternative Dispute Resolution Office. She is an amazing human being, and we're really, really lucky to have her here with us today. Welcome, Knox. Yeah, thank so you very much. Um, and uh, uh, it's a pleasure to join both you and Ife in this podcast. Yeah, um, thank you so much for being here today. So um, this topic is very important, especially in the African context, and given what's going on right now in the world and, and in the African continent, that's COVID-19. And so, in highlighting the importance of mediation or in highlighting the importance of, um, I guess you could say, putting an end to conflict, on the 23rd of March, 2020, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, urged warring parties across the world to lay down their weapons in support of bigger battle against um, COVID-19. Following in his footsteps, on the 27th of March, the chairperson of the African Union, Musa Faki Muhammad called on all warring parties in the African continent to engage in lasting ceasefire to give peace a chance. And so obviously this is in recognition of the importance of putting an end to conflict, especially given the pandemic. And hence, this brings us to the, today's topic. What role can mediation play 
as we all try to work for peace in situations of conflict around the African continent. Nox. Thank you very much, uh, Ife. Uh, well, you know, we are living through some very difficult times right now. I think a lot of us will not have ever experienced this kind of situation that we find ourselves in. Um, and we have seen, as you have mentioned, that the UN Secretary General has called for ceasefire. Um, and that there are many countries that have followed suit and have decided to call a ceasefire uh, so that they can deal with the pandemic. Um, they are not just countries in Africa, but they are countries all over the world, including one of the longest uh, conflicts in Afghanistan. Um, but, you know, the thing about mediation really is that it is such a wide area of practice. So, you know, there is a call for ceasefire, which applies quite largely to um, the area of peace and security, where there is uh, conflict within countries between governments and um, armed militia groups or rebels, uh, as you would like to have, uh, call it. But there are other types of conflicts that are happening, um, either personal conflicts uh, between individuals in countries, uh, conflicts that are happening between um, com companies, uh, or between individuals and companies and uh, uh, other conflicts that are happening within communities, even during this period of time. And we find ourselves as mediators in a very interesting period because depending on where you fall uh, in the mediation spectrum and where you are practicing, uh, the COVID-19 has presented opportunities, but it has also presented obstacles. So perhaps if I start talking about, you know, the peace and security arena, uh, what this uh, UN Secretary General was talking about. Um, you know, a lot of those um, peace and, and, and peace building efforts are done by both international and local actors. So if you have a conflict, say, in Yemen or in Syria or Afghanistan or, or South Sudan, um, a lot of the people who are trying to intervene in those conflicts are uh, other st uh, member states, other states, um, and other international organizations and international actors, but also supported by local um, uh, NGOs or local actors. And with this COVID-19, one of the things that we've seen is the grounding of travel, the ban of travel, uh, which is one of the biggest challenges because a lot of the times these uh, mediation processes or peace talks would have been held in person in a location where they bring people together. And now because uh, there is no air travel, you find that um, there is a limitation in the way in which people can travel to go and organize those, those, those meetings. Besides the travel, you know, there are lots of countries that have restricted gatherings to a number of people that is um, 10 or less in other countries you know they have allowed for 50 people or, or, or less but um, I think that the, the ballpark figure really is that many countries have said a gathering of 10 people or less is, 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 is quite okay and you will see that in mediation and peace talks in particular um, having 10 or less people presents a challenge in itself not just for the peace talks themselves where people gather with like representatives from different sides, advisors and the mediator, which usually makes up more than 10 people, but also the ability for the different parties to talk amongst themselves and to consult and just, you know, 
meet and strategize has also been limited. So, you know, there are these basic things that have been limited that are pre preventing really the, the, the progress of peace negotiations and peace talks. I'm going to stop here for a minute and see if you have any questions um, about any of the things that I've said. Okay. So that seems like a very um, interesting thing that you're saying in terms of the impact of obviously the ban on travel and, and mediation. But at the same time, that also sort of brings to mind some of the challenges because again, if we're talking about the context of the African continent, we know that mediation still have to continue even when the mediators are sometimes unable to travel. So I wonder if there are ways whereby these gaps has been closed as we work towards um, peace in situations of conflict in these countries. You know, what's interesting, Ife, is that uh, particularly when you're talking about um, the African context um, and perhaps other developing countries, is that um, what, what you're seeing in the non-peace and security mediation is a great amount of use of technology. So a lot of people are going online and using technology to try and hold and continue their peace negotiations. Mm -hmm. I would say that South Sudan um, and the, the, the Sudan uh, uh, peace talks are continuing to happen uh, over uh, an online platform. Mm -hmm. um, but those are very uh, unique situations using online platforms because like I said to you, in the mediation spectrum really, uh, there is individual co conflicts that go all the way up to uh, conflicts that we are seeing in, in countries between governments and um, uh, other militia groups or, or, or rebel groups. Um, and it depends on where you are in the spectrum as to whether or not the mediation process can continue with uh, online platforms like Zoom or, or BlueJeans um, or, or, or Skype for that matter. Um, I will speak particularly about the area which I occupy, which falls within the between um, individual conflicts and the, the the peace and security, where we do a lot of work with uh, local community and the private sector, local community and the government. And even those uh, conflicts, you know, you start to find that the ability for them to continue under these circumstances is very difficult because particularly if you're dealing with remote communities that don't necessarily have access to um, networks, even for the telephone, you know, sometimes we're dealing with very remote communities that telephone communication is very limited. A lot of them don't have smartphones. Uh, so if you're trying to talk to them, you are really trying to rely on a cell phone. But if you are then trying to escalate it to an online platform, usually there's no internet and if you have to find internet then you have to take them away from their location and take them somewhere where they may have access to the internet perhaps nearby hotels or that kind of thing and now what one of the challenges about doing that also is that uh, when we're doing a mediation process one of the things that we try and make sure is that you try and create a power balance between the parties so you want to make sure that both parties feel empowered to negotiate uh, in, 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 in the mediation. A lot of the times the parties may be familiar with some kind of, um, you know, mediation process or, 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 or 
an alternative way of resolving disputes outside of the court system. But they may not always be familiar with the actual process that is used by the mediator who comes in. So well, the mediator spends quite a bit of time trying to give them capacity. Now you find yourself in the COVID-19 situation where um, the mediator can't physically go to the ground and is relying on technology. Uh, some community members don't have technology, so they have to be taken to a different place where they are then going to be given the capacity um, to, 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 to talk to the other side. But now you're introducing a different element of technology, video uh, technology that people are not familiar with. And that also creates a little bit of a power imbalance because if, for instance, they are negotiating with a company, uh, the company is possibly used to negotiating on Skype or, or, or some other online platform. But then a local community may not be used to using those kind of um, uh, facilities. And therefore, it creates a bit of anxiety for them and their ability to proceed in, 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 uh, in mediation during the COVID-19 period. So uh, like you're saying, there, there, there are needs for people to continue with um, the mediation process. But... Um, some people are trying to continue, but I think a lot of countries that have conflict right now who have decided to uh, um, accept the, 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 the call from the Secretary General to call a ceasefire, a lot of those countries are really focused on the health and public health issues, the socioeconomic issues that are going to emanate from the pandemic. You know? I actually had a question with regards to that. Um, basically, wh whether you have seen a de facto ceasefire because of reprioritization of assets in uh, by some governments like after the call just or even before the call like has 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 there been a ceasefire that was kind of de facto saying okay we're going to to announce a ceasefire because we cannot handle this a conflict and covid-19 crisis we have to reprioritize our assets and our resources to make sure that we're keeping our people healthy have have you seen that is well, you know, where we, where we have seen, um, you know, the reprioritization, which has uh, sort of helped the, the, the conflict to, to subside a little bit, is Syria. I mean, I know Syria is not an African continent, but is not in the African continent. But, you know, Syria has got a large number of international players that are involved in the U.S., China, Turkey, Iran. And, and for instance, if you take China, where the conflict, with the, where the pandemic started, their focus shifted to trying to resolve the issues internally. Iran, which was also one of the um, uh, big hit uh, countries, uh, had to reprioritize. And actually with Iran, uh, who was uh, very much um, involved in uh, helping um, with the supply of arm, arms in, 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 uh, in Syria, you find that they have shifted their focus from supplying arms to having to deal with the pandemic. So those uh, funds um, um, have, have shifted. You find that um, Turkey, he was also supporting um, Syria with the deployment of um, military, has also shifted its focus and frozen uh, the deployment of military. So, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes there may be people who thought about the, the challenge of taking on um, this challenge of, of, of calling a ceasefire because of the public health pandemic. But there are other people who may be forced into doing that because the people who are supporting them, like I was saying, a lot of these peace um, building processes and, and, and peace prevention processes involve international players. 
and most people are now internally focused. The US is, is facing the pandemic and we've got the highest death rate at the moment. And so there is a huge focus on trying to deal with the pandemic rather than uh, being externally focused on um, you know, other conflicts. So I think that, uh, you know, that, that certainly has, has played itself out. And, and is, was that um, kind of shift balance between the different players? I mean, in Syria, or it can be anywhere, but in the example of Syria, was it like when um, Turkey, Iran, uh, you know, the, 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 the weapons supply has stopped? Was it kind of balanced between the different players or was it like giving more power to one, one side of the conflict as opposed to the other? Well, you know, because in, in, in totality, really, a lot of the, 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 the actors that are involved in Syria are in, on one side or the other. But yeah. all of them seem to be uh, focused on, um, you know, their um, internal public health issues. Therefore, I think the impact is felt by both sides. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's quite positive, a positive outcome, isn't it, then? That, that really is, uh, you know, one of the positive outcomes. And I mean, I, say, I, I see that also, you know, if you look at places like Afghanistan, for instance, um, you know, um, the, 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 what is coming out of there is that definitely even the, 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 the ta Taliban is trying to help um, with resolving the public health issue rather than, uh, you know, um, being involved in... Um, uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, warfare that, that, that they are usually involved in um, when, it's, when the pandemic is not ongoing. Um, so, you know, you are, you are seeing that in some places, the ceasefire and the pandemic has been very positive and, you know, will possibly have long-lasting impacts, um, perhaps depending on how long it lasts. Because, you know, sometimes if you look back at some pandemics, you know, historically that have happened, which resulted in, uh, you know, parties having to deal with public health issues for a very, very extended period of time to the extent that the resources that the, 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 the warring parties um, seem to dry up, you know, and when people's resources dry up, then you are sort of almost pushed to the place where you really have to figure out how do we resolve this and, and, and try and, and find a way forward without the, 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 the resources that we have been fortunate to have in the past. And I think that in the African context, talking about, I guess, even if it's limited successes, whereby the COVID-19 have resulted in warring parties deciding to lay down their arms for now, is mm. the case of the Ambazonia militants that announced that they were having a ceasefire from the 27th of March to the 10th of April to allow for communities in, in Southern Cameroon to sort of get the support or organize and, and do the necessary thing that would see to the prevention of COVID-19. And I guess you could call that a positive, but how, that, how long that would last is, is yet to be seen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, I, I think also different countries have really um, uh, treated this COVID-19 situation in very different ways, you know. Um, what also will, we, we, you know, may happen during this time is that because it's a public health situation, uh, there may be people who are part of a negotiating team that fall ill from the COVID-19 that may die during this process, you know, either they're, they're negotiators or they're advisors or whatever, 
and that then changes the dynamics of the 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 the, the whole uh, situation when we go back uh, to normality. And I think at this particular moment, because nobody really knows when things are going to go back to normal, um, you know, you have no idea how many people who are part of the negotiations um, uh, are going to be affected by this and how these things will, will, will change and play out going forward. Um, it may also be that, you know, for instance, countries decide that, you know what, they don't want to invest so much time in external issues. They want to invest a lot more money in internal issues, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we, we really don't know. I think there's lots of speculation about how the economies of each country are going to fare. And so what, what, where, where do the priorities go? Do, like if the economies collapse, do the priorities continue to be to support defense and military um, budgets, you know, or is it job creation and, and social uh, services that become important. So I think it's a very interesting um, situation. And, um, you know, there are quite a lot of people that are talking about the fact that the coronavirus, although it's a very unfortunate um, public health situation and that a lot of people are losing their lives, but then perhaps there's an equalizing effect about it. You know, nature is trying to take control of certain things. Um, so that we can review the way in which we live our lives, you know? I don't know. Okay, well, that's really an interesting take. So I wonder, I mean, we have about, we're being told that we have about seven minutes left. We can always reconnect, but I wondered whether, I mean, what you think, your expert opinion around, is mediation something that the continent should embrace moving forward, even post-COVID? Does it work? Are there evidence that is actually a useful tool in working for peace in situations of conflict? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I, I, I think that, you know, um, the reason why I even started with the, with the, with the uh, statement that, you know, mediation is a variety of uh, processes that happen across the spectrum from individual conflict all the way to conflict that involve uh, the larger players that we see in peace and security issues, you know. And I, I definitely think that there's a role for mediation completely, all the time, post-COVID, even during COVID. Because, you know, you have to go back to the reasons why conflicts actually start. Conflicts begin because a lot of the time there is a difference in the way people perceive things. There's a difference in the way people believe things. So there is a difference and there will always be differences, you know. Um, now, differences create particular feelings based on how they are handled. And we know that um, not just in the developing countries, but perhaps it's a lot more pronounced in developing countries, that justice systems don't tend to, 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 to satisfy the populace that lives in those countries, you know. They are slow, they take long, they are complicated. When people feel about going to court, they get very anxious. Um, uh, they just don't have the capacity and, 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 and confidence in some places to go to courts. In some countries, you know, people don't trust that the judge is going to rule in a fair way, that people are bribed, you know. So um, the justice system is a great tool to resolve conflict if it functions well. Um, there are even some disputes that really are more suited for the justice system. But there are many more that should be utilizing mediation because this is where people get an opportunity to express the type of outcomes that they want 
from uh, the conflict that they are having with people, you know. Uh, so I absolutely think that dispute resolution, mediation is a very crucial um, way of, 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 of resolving conflict. And honestly, I think, you know, if, if, if you want to have stability in countries, the justice system and rule of law and the people's ability to feel that their uh, disputes and conflicts are being heard and resolved, mediation plays a big part in that. It doesn't uh, remove the need for a judiciary, but um, it, it, it definitely does play a great part as an alternative to the judicial system because a lot of people don't have access to the judicial system in any case. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Um, Dehia, do you have anything to add? Um, I really am appreciative of this insight. And, and I'm, I think one takeaway for me from this conversation, um, one important one actually, is um, the, the positive outcome. That is quite unexpected for me. Um, and I really appreciate hearing about that. Yeah, and for me, it will be that, I mean, the fact that Mediation is not only seen as an important tool, but also a tool that it's continued to be utilized both by, by the bigger people and the less, not so much bigger people. And I'm looking forward to actually, um, I guess, what happens post-COVID and how mediation is utilized in putting an end to conflict in the continent, especially given that this year also is the year that the African Union have set aside for silence and the guns. Um, so thank you so much, Knox, for the interesting insight. I wonder if you have something to tell our listeners before we say- uh, Well, you know, I think it's very ironic that uh, it's um, the African Union's uh, year of silencing the guns and uh, nature seems to have given a lot of assistance in the ability to silence the gun. Uh, nature uh, agrees, nature <laughs> agrees. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My one-year-old barged in. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, so thank you so much for being our guest, Knox, and we look forward to having you again. Okay, thank you very much for having me, and I, I, I would love to talk more about mediation with you in the future. Thank you so much, Knox. And thanks to our dear listeners. Oh yeah, thank you so much and, and do join us again soon. Bye. Stay safe everyone, bye. Yeah, bye. bye.